From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Starling Closes Their Community, Digitizing Sexism, and A Guy Called Doug Ducey Does Things in Arizona. All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with those good, good people from Microsoft Azure. My name's Simon Taylor. Uh, is that my name? My name's Simon Taylor. Uh, and I love that the only bit of that that you got wrong was your name. <laughs> <laughs> and as you can hear, I'm joined by my colleagues and co-hosts, uh, Mr. David Breer. How are you doing? Uh, wonderful. Really, really good. Are you CEOing around? I am getting my CEO on. It's been a fun week, actually. It's been uh, very entertaining. We are very close to announcing a, a very cool launch, so... So, uh, keep your ears open You're for that such one. A tease. And I got to go on the BBC this week as well, which was That's good fun. fun. So that was uh, I didn't do a fun wave like you did because it doesn't work over the radio. But uh, yeah, that was waving on the radio is the future. It um, is. Let's wave to all of our listeners, everybody. Hello. Hey. <laughs> that was waving. Uh, Sam Mall is here, all the way from Jacksonville, Florida, doing podcast things. Uh, how are you, Sam Mall? I'm very good. More importantly, Arsenal starts in like two hours. So can we please hurry up? Because <laughs> I have tickets. Sam get to is the game. an Arsenal fan. As you yes, can tell. yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you okay today? Uh, no, that? I'm all right. Moving mm-hmm. on. Okay, let's move right on. Um, we're not alone. Uh, we're coming to you live from those 11FS offices in WeWork, Allgate, London. And uh, well, just before we get started, um, we want you to get in touch with us. Uh, we want you to find out uh, you know, about us. If you want to know anything about finance, fintech, or if you just got some questions, if there's a story we've missed and we really should cover, producer Laura always struggles to find the unfinally stories. Like they're really hard to find good ones. Um, so email us podcasts at 11fs.com. Or even more fun if we've like totally butchered something. Yeah. Like, because we do that quite frequently. There was one guy who got really upset with me on Twitter about how we pronounced some elements of US regulation. Um, so, yeah, if you feel like we've got something wrong, that will probably spur people to do it even more. Absolutely. But we're not alone. We are not alone at all. We are joined by some excellent, excellent guests. First and foremost, uh, not foremost, I suppose, but first um, is Kat Harris, Innovation Lead from Lloyd's Banking Group. Kat, how are you doing? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. And thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for coming back on the show. And uh, Ahmed Zaidi, have I said your name right there? Yep, that's right. Uh, Ahmed, you are CTO at Catalyst AI. That's right. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what Catalyst AI does? Yeah, so, um, so at Catalyst, we try to architect solutions with companies to answer important questions and help them make the decisions. So we use things like machine learning and deep learning and our passion for solving high impact problems. Um, we do things from optimizing potato yields to helping prevent suicide. So pretty much a whole range. Okay. First story this week is about Starling closing its community. Uh, and it's closed its online forum, but it promises to continue the conversation. They cited the lack of use by most customers uh, and being a distraction for the company from the core focus and a vocal minority misunderstanding its purpose. Uh, the post also made reference to banking being highly regulated and the forum interaction being restricted by that due to tipping off rules, um, which obviously are yeah, quite important. Uh, Starling says they remain committed to an open conversation with customers and the wider fintech community through other channels such as social, blog, and monthly newsletter. Uh, they, they say in running a forum, we're effectively setting ourselves up as a publisher with a duty to take responsibility for the content published on a forum. But as a bank, 
we're different from conventional publishers. It's not just about the law, it's also about trust. Our customers trust us with their hard-earned money. And so they found that harder to achieve than they imagined. So um, there are other banks that have forums and communities. So we spoke to uh, Sophie Gibbard, the Managing Director for Europe for Fedor, and we also spoke to Richard Cook, Online Community Manager at Monzo. So let's hear from them. How Fedor has leveraged the community to to actually um, grow. So the community is really at the heart of what Fedor does. The community was actually launched in 2007 when people had lack of trust in banks at that time because it was the the, the the crisis and you didn't know which bank to trust anymore. So basically, we launched the community for people to help each other around personal finance topic and not only rely on bankers anymore for your finances, but really share your experience with others and really help each other like that. So it's really one part of uh, of the community, which we started actually on Facebook until we had our own community in uh, in the in the bank. And we did that for, for three years until we actually launched the bank. The community is now strong of 700,000 uh, members so, and it's keeping on growing. The second part of the community is really that we leverage this community to actually understand what our clients uh, want out of us. And this is really important for us because, um, of course, you can talk to your clients on social media. Uh, you can also do some polls, but the community has really been a way to help us prioritize our roadmap to get feedback on our products, uh, on what we did well and what we didn't do that well. And we have also leveraged the community to actually include our clients as much as possible in our decisions. I can cite a few examples, such as like for when I uh, when we launched Fidor Bank in the UK, we leveraged the community to actually uh, like choose the pricing of the card and it was really important for for us because as a as a small bank uh, we needed to charge somehow for for the cards uh, especially ATM transactions and it's through the communities that we actually have been able to make the right pricing for that and also find work around that that we are now saying at the customer service so the community members told us that they were not so happy to pay through ATMs and they found a way to actually not pay for ATMs by doing cashback at supermarkets. So this was really something coming from the community and a solution that we can now use at customer service. We have also leveraged the community to actually negotiate uh, our interest rates uh, for the loans and for the saving bonds when there is a move in the markets. Whether it's up or down, we make a proposition in the community and we actually negotiate with our community members. It allows them to really understand where we are coming from and for us to make sure that we stay relevant for them. And the last part of the community is that uh, we uh, use it actually for as a customer service channel because we believe that actually uh, customer service shouldn't take place where we want, but where the customers want. And some customers want actually support in the community. So we have customer service people that are identified ISO in the community and, um, and that answer client questions. And as Every time there is something happening, then the, it also happens in uh, in the community. The community has really been here, like at the heart of our proposition. It has helped us grow 
our customer numbers, um, but it has also enabled us to, to stay relevant for our uh, customers, basically. We have, uh, let's say, three types of profiles in the community. We have the customer service people, of course, that are identified as so and that answer to customer service question. They are feeder employees. We have what we call moderators, which are not feeder employees. They are freelancers that basically are paid by Fedor to animate the community. So they have their own opinion. They uh, help create topics in the community as well as support uh, people's questions, basically, by answering them and also support customer service out of um, office hours. And last, we have the community members <laughs> themselves that, uh, of course, help animate the community, create content and help others. And their interest in doing so is that there are people that are interested in talking about personal finance, in helping share shape uh, a bank so they get a bit rewarded for that um, we have a reward system uh, of a few cents per uh, questions uh, and answer um, they give but it means anyone can get basically uh, rewarded for helping others so it's quite new in the sense that we pay people to actually ask questions <laughs> and answer questions and the more you are active in the community basically you get a karma uh, um, a point system where we reward you not only by money but by showing you or showing that you are very active the first like hundred or so users that joined Monzo had to come into the office physically to collect their cards, and that was really great because we established those like early relationships with our users. But it also it helped us understand why people wanted to use Monzo, what they would use it for, because um, we really want to build a product that helps people's financial lives, makes them makes money easier to manage, and by like having that very close relationship with our users, we could find out. What, what they want to use the app for. So on the forum, they're constantly giving us those use cases, like telling us what they want to do with their money. And it's this invaluable source of ideas and feedback. It's, it's growing more and more. How else can we sort of wring that feedback out of them? Um, so we have Monzo Labs on our online community now, which is a, an area of the forum, but it's also within the app where you can test features out before they're launched and get that really early, like, juicy feedback um, that's really important and helps us build a great product. They don't hold back. They, they let us know what they like, what they don't like. And either way, it's really important to us. Um, we recently d- uh, did joint accounts through Monzo Labs, and that was really important because we learned so many things about the particular details of like the design of it and specific use cases for what people wanted to see and we made some pretty big changes based on what they said the community is just a very rich source of like those user stories and very candid feedback that is like gold dust to um, product developers i think any online community comes with challenges it's um the moderation alone is is a full-time job dealing with like difficult posters like trolls and stuff like that you get like that's just like a path to the course of having an online community and we 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 take it very seriously like we dedicate a lot of resources to like making sure they get a great everyone on there gets a great experience very actively moderating it and i think when you're a bank there's even the challenge is even greater yeah because you're highly regulated highly regulated and we take like compliance very seriously and all the regulation so we work very closely with like our financial crime and security teams to make sure that if anything does pop up that is you know could be an issue that it gets escalated to the proper channels because an online community forum isn't always the best place to sort of deal with you know things that could be financial crime related for instance it is very difficult to do and we have to be very vigilant like when we see that and uh, our community do a great job they they flag those things to us when they come up they tell us hey it looks like someone's you know posting 
information that shouldn't be there and we, we like swoop in and, and clear it up we have quite a lot of people like internally who help us keep an eye on things and, and, and we're growing our community team to help us like meet that challenge as well i think the value of an online community is is the discourse is is like all the great content that gets posted there and i guess yeah like you have to be vigilant and careful about what is what's going on keeping an eye on it but uh, i'm not particularly worried about that at the moment like Maybe I, maybe I should look into it, but in my opinion, it's 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 something you just have to be prepared for and engage with them, and, and we are. Well, we're always looking at more ways to engage even more people. So Monzo Labs is, is like the start of that, but the forum is always like the heart and soul of uh, our community strategy. I think I love it, heart and soul. That's probably a, a worthy a worthy note to. <laughs> All right, thank you to Sophie and to Monzo. So from the room, what do we think about what um, Sophie and, and uh, Richard had to say about this? And what do we think about Stalling closing their community? Uh, is this an important thing or storm in a teacup? Sort of feels like the answers from Fedor and Monzo sort of contradicts what Starling are saying to a certain degree. So this, I think this one's really odd. You know, challenger banks are establishing themselves as the, you know, the the, the voice of the people. Um, you know, and what both Monzo and Fedor have particularly have done in terms of setting um, real sort of open debates about pricing for products or features that are on demand, really creates that community creates that connectivity to to customers i do worry that actually this starts to distance starling from reality a little bit in terms of feedback but you know they're not going to be completely in, uh, insular from that because if people want to rant then twitter's quite good for that yeah. one i find um but i wonder if this is a broader thing on starling and i'll come back to that in a little while uh, after you guys have a chat but i've got a prediction on this one. Ooh, Ooh I just love foreshadowing doesn't he do you have any thoughts on this cat it's not so much banking related but once upon a time i worked in pharmaceuticals um for a company that specialized in diabetes and one of the most important resources i guess i used during that time because i was working in an innovation function was reading um i think it was diabetes.org which is a forum forum around diabetes care and that was some of the best information that i found about customers that we could directly feed back in and so i think having that kind of space whether it's directly through a company like starling or another bank um is a really important and useful thing to have in different ways and that place for customers have having a point of conversation because i guess finance is quite similar to mental health in a way was there's a still a bit of a taboo around it so i'm looking at this as more of a not so much needing a conversation around the product or the bank itself, whoever has one, because you've got Twitter and other forums for that where people will definitely yeah. put that information out. They're still going to have lots of spaces for that. But I think more in a general sense of a forum around finance and talking about finance and breaking a bit of that tab- taboo that we've had. It's okay to talk about finance. Like, yeah. It needs to be okay to talk about finance. I think that's a really good point. I mean, they do say, look, we're going to continue the conversation. Mm. Uh, but what I loved about what both Sophie and what Richard said um, from, from Fedor and Monzo is how the community drove their product development they talked about like this is the actual use cases and the features themselves were driven by having that community whether it's you know 100 people coming into the office or not now starling would probably tell us they intend to keep doing things like that but it's really hard with a forum do do we think they had a a troll problem was it focus problem like what do you think really drove this 
I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second yeah. and say that actually maybe they made the right decision to close it down. So if you read the article, it says things like, you know, people are sharing their personal issues about how to address particular concerns. They're sharing customer data. What it ultimately comes down to is what was this forum set out to do? And did it complete that objective? If it was set out to identify new product directions, then that's fine. Um, it needs to account for that. But if it was set out to do just a general community sense, um, then there's questions around whether that was actually achieved. Um, the other concern is, you know, whether or not um, customers can actually drive product innovation in the way that Starling wanted them to do it. So would it be better to have focus groups? Also, when you're scaling, um, it's not a scalable model with this community. Who's going to be the one that assesses the innovative ideas from the forum? Like you have to then create data science tools that allow you to analyze the text there and then f- identify salient statements that you know are indicative of product development, which is quite a complicated task on its own. So maybe in a way, you know, there's a better way to do this, and forum is not one of them. You know, what I liked is I actually went out to the Monzo forum to read about the Starling forum <laughs> to get some feedback, and actually there was a post that that was out there today from the Monzo forum that said, uh, oh, oh man, all posts appear to have disappeared, leaving all the FAQ threads. The reasons for closing it should be a warning sign to us here in the Monzo forum to ensure we keep this community a good place to visit because I love this community and reading feedback, support, and suggestions. I, I think there's something about a community when it's community-driven. I think that one of the key differences, uh, a lot of banks have uh, employees or freelancers run the, um, kind of forums, and there's this advice guidance question about, are they actually giving financial advice? And is the bank giving financial advice through its forum, or is it giving? You know, is the community talking to each other, and this is a place to engage with the brand, but also engage with each other? It's, it, I can see why it's a difficult, difficult line to tread. Yeah, but the you know the organisation creates the community. They create the platform. They don't necessarily authorise or endorse everything that goes through it. And I think this is a, an element of uh, you know Martin Lewis in the the uh, Money Sending Expert Forum doesn't endorse everything that goes through that. And there's lots of sort of self selection through that for helping people out of money worries or you know various different things. If people are sharing PII or any sort of uh, you know very sensitive information about them. We'd like they needed it to stop that stuff, but I, I kind of fear this is about controlling conversation. You know, this feels a little bit like I don't want to like suddenly stand on my chair and start talking about censorship. But if you can't control the positivity of something and you see that in a negative way, that's a problem. Yeah, I um, actually read that in some of the forums too, did they? On, on Monzo and Aquora and Reddit because I was that guy who went out and looked. Which was I'm, not I'm so glad somebody did Sam. Thanks. I have no life, um, but it was it was interesting, right? Because that was some of the commentary. Was I'm actually not surprised because lately I've noticed threads being deleted, right, mm. with, within the forum. So this wasn't a shocker. Well, and your um, you know your point around uh, the product development. Actually, if you if you sort of look at the way in which both Feeder and Monzo went to market, it was about getting out really quickly and then. Uh, finding product market fit through evolving that process. So, whereas actually Starling took the longer duration to get the uh, banking application, get the license, and then release the product. Mm. So, they took a very different route. You know, they've ended up in similar territories, albeit slightly different customer bases in terms of where we're at now. Like, I I think there's a control thing here, if I'm honest Mm. with you. I, I do wonder if... Um, this is a uh, a sign of a a different intention through starting up the company. Right. Uh, I would put money now on within the next three years, Starling being bought by a bank. Mm-hmm. I think a big bank now. This is 
positioning, I mm-hmm. think, in its earlier sense of being in a situation where Making Stalin, it easier to buy. Yeah, Stalin mm-hmm. controls the narrative to either do a very, very large raise yeah. um, or that they are then bought by a much bigger organization. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and I'll put £100 on it now. How are there any other who, who, get, yeah, who gets to claim that? Yeah. <laughs> so this one's for Simon. Um, so, Simon, you probably know more about the blockchain space. So initially when the exchanges came up, like Polynex and Bittrex, um, they initially had troll boxes and they removed them and sort of came back. Like, is there any sort of kind of similarity there? Like, why did they remove them? Yeah, I think generally managing communities is hard, whether you're in the blockchain space, whether you're in the uh, Reddit space. I mean, Twitter and Facebook have the same fake news problem. Twitter has huge issues around bots and fake and, but also abuse and trolls. Like it's horrific. Some of some of the, and and their ability to respond to that. And and actually the onus on the publisher platform, like are they publishers? Are they not? If you go back to uh, 1996, uh, I think it was uh, the communications act or there was an act in, in uh, that the Clinton administration passed, basically saying that people who have websites aren't publishers, which means Google can republish something from the New York Times without being a publisher. They can share that content. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has led to the innovation we have, but it also had the challenge that they weren't policing that. And now we're seeing Facebook has a war room um, to deal with the upcoming midterm elections that, that you've got in the US. Good luck, Sam. Thank you. All of that kind of stuff. Sam's going for election, by the way. He wants to be president. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that'll happen. So, so yeah. I, I think generally it's just hard, but getting it right is is so so crucial. Yeah. And, and actually, I think um, the crypto space has been an, an example of the sublime and the ridiculous for communities. You've mm-hmm. got sublime communities on Twitter, and crypto Twitter can be brilliant and mm-hmm. it can be horrific. Um, so like the curation of your community is definitely an art form mm. uh, i'm sure we could talk about this one forever but we've got to get to the next story uh the next story comes from the harvard business review and uh, the headline here is the digitization of banks disproportionately hurts women so as banks rush to digitize their operations many have found that closing their local branches can help them maintain a high return on otherwise pricey transformation european banks closed over nine thousand branches in 2016 um, which is a four 0.6% reduction in a single year. And in the United States, the total number of bank branches has dropped by 8.2% since 2013. Um, so that's pretty significant. Apparently, according to this study, uh, women face increased difficulty accessing bank financing, and specifically women's entrepreneurship suffers heavily from recent transformation amongst banks. Ahmed, you looked at the study behind this one. Um, what do you think about um, the the methodology they use to get to to this uh, assertion? Yeah, so I think I think to start off with, um, it's clear. Like, I want to be clear that the gender stereotypes is something that's real. It exists in workplaces, exists in uh, multiple industries. But whether or not the article and the studies that they cited in the article actually support this conclusion, I'm not so convinced. So the study has 175 or something around that um, samples that they've taken from Sweden and they've analyzed that um, and they've essentially said, well, based on this analysis, um, it's clear that, um, you know, women are going to other methods of attaining funding other than VCs because there's a gender stereotype. The other study that they sort of cited by the same author, so the Harvard Business Review and the two two articles that they cited or the papers that they cited are from the same author. So the other um, study that they cited was about this other kind of analysis that they did, in the, again, in the Swedish market, um, where they took seven financiers, and two of them which were female, five of them which were male, and those financiers 
um, you know, collected these online applications and then conducted some sort of additional um, analysis by meeting the individual, making phone calls, going on site, interacting with them. And then um, they recorded the interaction amongst these seven decision makers about whether each individual VC would get the money or not. So there's a lot of things to say here. Firstly, there's no conclusive evidence that shows that digitization is the cause of this. Actually, in a way, the two articles are contradicting one another because in the second study, the way that they analyzed whether someone was um, being gender biased was by looking at their language and their rhetoric. And uh, that language and rhetoric was obtained by interacting with the individual. So it's kind of... How does that imply digitization was the issue? And and I think it's interesting that, yeah, you you started out by saying gender bias is a massive issue in financing for entrepreneurship. Nobody's denying that. But these studies don't necessarily link digitization to that. But isn't it so important that we make sure that when we are digitizing, we're doing it in the right way? And even just not necessarily always just digitizing, starting thinking about how do we be truly digital? How do we build things from the ground up to be what customers needs? And I, and I think that's that's kind of the crucial thing to keep in mind. Yeah, I mean, that gets back to the teams that are designing, right? I mean, honest to God, if they all look like me, they're beautiful then. But I mean, if they all, <laughs> and the room laughs. And, but, and so humble too. And so humble. Yeah, if they're all, you know, 52-year-old white guys from Detroit, shocking. What's the product actually going to look like? It gets back to the diversity of the teams, right? I mean, in the diversity in this room, which obviously our listeners can see right now. But if you were to look around, when, you know, we get to this topic, we have four males sitting around, and we haven't let Cat talk once. Hey, Cat, you want to say hey, something? Token. Hey, Token. <laughs> hey. And what do you think of this? Um, I think, first of all, with anything like this coming through, it's important that we're having a conversation about it and we're actually talking about it. And regardless of validity of some of the data and the points that are being made, we are talking about it and we can then investigate that further and the banks can look at that further and see, okay, what can we do about this? And also, this is still quite a relatively new space. We're working in a very traditional industry that is being disrupted at the moment and there's a lot of work to be done and it's unfortunately not going to happen overnight or super quickly as much as a lot of us will probably want it to. And we're going to start uncovering more and more things like this coming through and more customer well the beauty of it as well is that we're going to get more customer insight and work over time to actually get some really valuable insights on that and tailor things so that we can address some of these issues that are coming out you know what we're seeing in the u.s quite a bit especially in silicon valley and some of the others when it comes to venture capital is more and more um groups that are getting together that is focused on this right um the cover of fast company right now is um, Arlen Hamilton, and I'm really sorry because I'm sure I slaughtered your first name, but she is a trip. We're actually going to be interviewing some folks from her company, uh, Backstage uh, Ventures, um, but she's a trip because three years ago she was on food stamps, third broke, and now she's the first minority woman on the cover of Fast Company outside of Oprah. Wow. Even Even better, she's a married lesbian black woman who's the founder of a venture capital firm only focused on the minority side of this. So, But not just women, but minorities across the whole. In the U.S., we have a horrific track record when it comes to investment um, across that spectrum. So personally, love to see this happening. Know it's a problem, how much of one we need to continue the conversation. 
What stood out to me in this is digital's an opportunity to do things better. Digital's absolutely, an opportunity to absolutely. do things well. Uh, and actually, it's an opportunity to challenge our biases and uh, baking in, you know, sort of measuring how successful are we being at delivering performant products given the society that needs to meet them. And building uh, a mechanism to do that, I think, is, is really, really important. Understanding those core jobs, understanding those demographics and their needs, then we can build better products and services. Why aren't people doing that then? Because it's not happening, right? You know, this is the this is one of the narratives that we use a lot. But like, people are just digitizing old ass analog shit that they've got. Like, why are we not seeing people rethink this stuff? I think it's hard and it's scary because if you see it as oh well, that changes my whole world, that's scary. It's it's worrying. But actually, if somebody came and held your hand and said, "Look, digital banking's only one percent finished. There is another way." <laughs> wow. I, I never wow. hold hands. Yeah. I just shout it loudly <laughs> outside your your office. This podcast brought to you by Eleven. <laughs> so just just on the on the other point though, I um I real take I, I take exception that actually people like Sam can't develop products for people mm. not like Sam. Like, actually, um, you're an incredibly empathetic human being. So Yeah, but I you, used to be an asshole. Sure, but you, you're better now. It's fine. Okay. I am still one. I'm working through it. Um, but being in the situation where actually people have empathy surely is just like a, a thing that makes us a human. But you learn empathy through life experience. I really was an asshole when I was younger, for those that know me. Uh, you, I think you learn more and more empathy, and you get a broader worldview, um, speaking from an American standpoint, right? I'm rare. I have a passport that's actually stamped. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I mean, you have my a passport for is, stars. Yeah, right? I have a passport that's actually active. <laughs> I guess there's one point that in this article that I really want to talk about, which is uh, they said that, you know, we can use algorithms to make these um, models less biased. And um, I would disagree to some extent. Um, yes, in, in theory, that's possible. But if you're training your models on biased data, then your model is also going to be biased. It comes back to the human. Yeah, because that's the training model you're using. And actually, even if you remove the feature, let's say you remove the feature that, oh, in my representation for the for the customer, I remove whether they're male or female. Um, there's going to be a correlation, as the study suggests, between the amount that's approved and whether they're male or female. So you're, you have this sort of... Yeah. The bias, bias is in the data, and the data learns from the bias exactly. in the data, yeah. and it just compounds. It the, just compounds. The, the, so, yeah. so you 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 sort of mean by that then, like biases in salary ratings and everything that kind of feeds into this, then actually yeah. means. So it's not really the lending system; it's mm-hmm. the fact that the lending system is actually probably doing what it should do, which exactly. is going. If you've got a higher salary, you're able to lend more money. Mm-hmm. It just so happens, like fifty years of being fucked up has meant that. Exactly. Men have got higher salaries than women have got salaries, and therefore they're going to be lent more money. Yeah. And, and, and. So th- there's a whole bunch of interesting things we can dive into there. I think the opportunity for digital to do better and the irony of digital not always being about automation but actually about adding the humanity back in i think that was the key theme for me of like how do we how do we build empathy into digital products so there's an assumption that the automated future is robotic and has no humans where actually the best brands that have really got digital display humanity and empathy probably better than any and they just do it with a digital front end or or even inject them you know, like Oak North is a really good example of that. Like they've got great algorithmic sort of basis of what they're doing, but actually they, they drop a human in to go, does this make sense? You know, and actually I'm not saying there should be a broken process. You know, we do believe there should be sort of straight through processes, but, you know, sample sizing and, and, and being able to check what it is that we're setting up the, the system to actually do on a regular basis. If they can figure out how to do that for pH on a pool type thing, they should be able to figure out how to do that for uh, for uh, application capability. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we 
we got briefly onto the U.S. and I got to move us to the next story since it's a, about a state of concern in the U.S. Um, the New York State um, has sued the f- the rest of the USA um, to stop federal bank uh, fintech bank charters. So uh, New York State's top banking regulator on Friday sued the federal government to void its decision to award national bank charters to online lenders and payment companies. So Maria Vulo, um, superintendent, which is just that you'd never get a superintendent outside of the US. That's just a great name. Um, of New York's Department for Financial Services called the decision by the OCC. You're down with OCC. To yeah, let, you know uh, me. Um, called the decision, so Maria Vola called the decision by the OCC to let financial technology companies or fintech firms obtain charters. Lawless, ill-conceived, and destabilizing of financial markets. Big. She also said the decision left consumers at great risk of exploitation by weakening oversight of predatory lending and allowing the creation of more too-big-to-fail financial institutions. Uh, <laughs> okay, right. Um, what do we think of this one, Sam? The good news the is there's rumors she's going to resign. Honest to God, the rumors in the U.S. are over and over again. She was appointed by Governor Cuomo. This is an appointed supervisor, I think, back in 2016. But consistently, we're, we're hearing rumors that um, she's going to resign and actually run for another office. Thank God, personally. Um, because of this? or uh, Just life in general. Um, it, it's, it's, to me, it's incredibly annoying. When you're dealing with um, anything in the U.S., you're dealing across 50 states, 50 you know, different approaches to regulation on top of the federal side of this. And then we wonder why, from my point of view, we're so damn far behind everyone else. And is that part of the problem here is that New York is known as one of the main states where by which most of financial services runs. So if you want to get regulated, you go you go get a license in New York and then that sort of helps you get into the rest of the state because it's uh, the rest of the country because it's a specialism. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. It's, you know, I mean, you, you obviously, you know, you have Silicon Valley, you have Transaction Alley um, in, in Atlanta. Um, you know, you have a, a huge financial hub in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and then, you know, you have New York, obviously, um, when it comes to fintech. It's incredibly frustrating that what I would call the fintech capital, fintech capital of the U.S., New York, has a government official with this type of approach. We're literally calls anybody that uses a sandbox as a toddler. Yeah, um, toddlers use sandboxes. Toddlers use sandboxes. Uh, politely piss off. It, interestingly, of um, the CFTC called their fintech outreach program Lab CFTC. They, they uh, some clever marketing going on there so that they couldn't have that uh, that same thing. Any any thoughts on this one? No, I'll add to this real quick and then I'll get off of it because this is my soapbox and it really pisses me off. The idea that you're going to create a tech solution that only works within the confines of your state is the dumbest ass Mm. thing I've ever heard of in my life. (laughs) It just is. That's ridiculous. It's bass backwards. It is back ass where it's just stupid. And that's, I think it alludes to two things. So they're talking about like lack of oversight over the companies. Um, I don't think that's the problem with the companies. I think that's the problem with the regulations. So you can't it's, – it's, it's a problem that, you know, Murray is not able to keep up with the changes in, the, in technology and the regulation is just too slow. So that's the first issue. The second issue is when has decentralization helped? Let's just take like a parallel example in the UK. If you look at the NHS, you know, tech companies don't want to work in the UK, mostly because in order to work in the UK, you have to work with the NHS. And basically, you have to get trust level approval for every technology that you use. Uh, it's so decentralized. There's no general governance system. Um, um, and that prevents technology from actually really taking place. And, and that prevents... The inverse is also true, right? So the, one of the reasons why fintech, I believe, has done so well in the UK is you've got the Bank of England, the FCA, the PRA, three. 
that's it. And if you get them, then you're pretty much good to go for a 68 million person market. Mm-hmm. And until uh, very recently, it looks very likely that you could also passport into the rest of the Europe and go get that 500 million person market. Mm-hmm. But, was- but theoretically, like, we're smaller than Florida, right? So, like, this is the this is the narrative, really. Like, being in a situation where... Do you want to shout out to Jacksonville, Sam? I, I give it a little bit of yeah. a lift. So my, my hometown. Being, being in a situation where, actually, like, we do have those is just the equivalent of a state having something like that in that sense. You know, like, we may be able to passport. We may not be able to passport. And actually, and passporting is a really interesting idea, isn't it? That, that's probably not been um, sort of explored through the OCC fintech charters, at least, and not what I've read. And Sarah Kachansky will correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, there's a sub-story here as well coming from Forbes that says the fintech banks are coming the fintech banks are coming um so simple chime and varo apparently are making waves in the usa sam um it seems like uh, stopping fintech isn't possible anymore so um is this just a case of state versus fed i mean are fintech banks really coming in the us is it, is it a thing no that that's that's hype i'm sorry but no you know chase has released fin um i don't know anyone Sarah Timmons, Wave over there, are my second employee in the U.S. Do you know anybody that uses Finn? That would be a no. Do you know anybody that uses Chime? Yeah, me either. Do you know Venmo? Yes, everybody, all my kids. There's one. No, the opportunity to disrupt in the U.S. is still massive, massive in my opinion. But it, but is there not an element here where the regulators has come out to basically say big companies are okay and we don't need small companies like this is the literal inverse of what it was that the fca was sort of doing you know the fca came out and said yeah like just having everybody like just big towers who are important like maybe we should like competition or something so go with me here if you're about to leave and you're about to run for office you need people to fund you Right, and and if you need people to fund you, there are certain lobbying groups and groups that fund political campaigns that that might want to fund somebody that takes a certain perspective that they happen to like. Are they usually big companies? Yeah, usually really, really big companies. Yeah. Hmm. How about that? So, if if somebody in that position happened to said something that protects a monopoly position of large companies, maybe they'd get funded. I don't know. I'm just speculating here. Um, But interestingly, the OCC spokesman Brian Hubbard said in an email that the regulator would vigorously defend its authority to grant national charters to qualified companies engaged in the business of banking. So let's see if this turns into a fight. I think somebody will be uh, demanding a duel at some point by the sounds of that email. Who was the email being sent to? Just randomly. The government. The (laughs) government, yeah. Um, So on episode um, 243, um, Sarah Kachansky gave us a real overview of the OCC FinTech Charter, the first time Maria Vula um, kind of had this this outburst. So, um, all right, next story. There's a FinTech hub to watch. Um, So Luxembourg for finance.com, Alipay and China UMS, um, which is China UniPay, I believe, are going to set up an EU hub in Luxembourg. Pretty big organization. Wow. Yeah, right. Uh, at the end of a week-long mission led by the Minister of Finance, Pierre Garamenga, to Beijing, um, China's Ant Financial confirmed the decision of its payments arm, Alipay, to set up an EU hub. Uh, the announcement comes after China UnionPay have also said they will. This, uh, during the visit, uh, cooperation agreements have been signed, including a memorandum of understanding between the Luxembourg Stock Exchange and the China Central Depository and Cleaning, uh, cleaning? Clearing uh, to simultaneously display prices across across both of those markets. Um, and then, of course, the Luxembourg House of Financial Technology, the LaHoft, um, signed an MOU with Deep Blue, a Chinese pioneer in um, artificial intelligence to do 
interesting stuff. Um, and Luxembourg has seven of the large, uh, seven large Chinese banks, as well as um, two banks which are controlled by Chinese shareholders. Luxembourg's really going after it post-fintech. It's courting China. I mean, one of the big post-Brexit things was going to be, now we can do business with China. Now we can do business with India. And Luxembourg's, yeah, like, hold my beer. (laughs) (laughs) Got those guys. For such a small place, it is massively punching above its weight. It's amazing. Like, they have really gone out there. Like I say, to to establish a hub with with these guys is is kind of crazy. Is this, though, like, trying to read between the lines, though, is this Ant Financial sort of going back a little bit on what they've been saying where basically just telling everybody there's nothing to worry about? Or is this, like, kidding, we're here now, you know? And what does setting up a hub mean? Like, we've got five people in an office, or does it mean, actually, this is going to be the base of our operations, we're going to partner directly with fintechs, we're going to fund them, we're going to you know, do what um, a lot of what Visa's doing, where it invests, it, Visa invested in Square, Visa invested in a whole bunch of companies. Are they going to go that route? Are they going to do the MasterCard thing where you know MasterCard is the brand used by most of the fintechs? Are they going to try and go that way? What's it going to look like? Uh, because historically, most of the people that use them came from China. Um, so will they will they actually see usage um, across Europe? I really don't know. I think I think this is the this is like the uh, elephant kind of running into the room to a certain degree, isn't it? So uh, I guess we'll have to see how it pans out in Luxembourg and whether they're just using that as a springboard somewhere else. There's something interesting about the centralization of a small city state and its ability for a government to kind of um, coordinate itself. Uh, There's a really interesting linked story here from CNBC where apparently China is investing nine times more into Europe than North America. Uh, Should we expect more moves coming? Some is... There's a reaction there. Leave me alone, please. (laughs) Uh, For those who are interested, episode 250 was a Luxembourg Insights show, highlighting their fintech credentials and a whole bunch of other stuff. So please go download that episode. Maybe this is what's happened, is all the Chinese banks listen to that episode, and it's kind of like someone's put a cool Instagram post. And they're like, this is the new holiday spot we need to go to. This is the new fintech Yeah, we need to be careful what we say, don't we? We're just affecting global trends now like just uh, making you know everything cool and so humble with it too it's yeah. great david's head just got bigger and it bigger did, yeah. <laughs> which is pretty it's shocking, difficult actually. you guys are gonna yeah. have to get out of the room yeah. now honestly yeah. <laughs> Alrighty, time for a quick break we'll be back very shortly is mind control the tech industry's greatest invention that's one of the questions the financial times ft weekend is currently asking Each week, FT Weekend brings together an intelligent mix of news, compelling stories, and global lifestyle journalism. To read the article on mind control and a selection of other articles, visit ft.com forward slash open minds. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Finastra. 
Welcome back to Fintech Insider by 11FS. Uh, 11FS, well, what are we, David? Are we a challenger consultancy? We're the challenger consultancy. Hell yeah. Uh, working to build and launch next-gen digital propositions. We start at the customer. We, we do, every we, time. <laughs> hey, customer. How you doing? Um, we've just published a free report all about user experience in finance on our platform, 11FS Pulse. Uh, read about who's getting it right, and more importantly, who's getting it wrong. Who's getting it wrong? I'm not going to tell you. You've got to go read the report. Um, and view real user journeys from behind the customer's login screen. How do we do that? Magic, that's how. Uh, head over to pulse.11fs.com forward slash research to start reading. Alrighty, um, next story comes from Forbes.com. And this one is uh, Arizona hits London in a mission to woo UK fintechs. Love woo in a headline, by the way. Um, Doug Ducey. I love Woo too. (laughs) (laughs) I love Woo. (laughs) Seriously. Doug Ducey, which is the best name, um, the governor of Arizona, uh, hopes Britain's best fintechs can be persuaded beyond to look beyond Silicon Valley when expanding into the US for the first time. Oh, Doug. Um, Arizona is pitching to British fintechs in the UK this week, offering regulation-free access to the U.S. market? What? Can we just take a moment for regulation-free access to the U.S. market? Is that serious? Oh, my God. Sounds, so- sounds risky. So he, he's been traveling around the U.K. then talking to fintechs about uh, So he's basically saying, look, free. the rent's a lot cheaper than it is living in San Francisco. Um, they've done a lot in terms of they're a bit like Delaware. They're easier to incorporate. Um, the taxes are arguably better i know nothing about delaware other than wayne's world references right so like is it it's good for tax is it i find this incredibly funny personally because we were talking about new york before this right and just the nonsense um when you do have literally the fintech capital and the banking capital of the u.s and now we're talking about arizona so in arizona you go to phoenix amex has a a wonderful presence there there is a a tech community that's sprouting up in phoenix um, it is hot as hell, but I mean, it it really is starting to step up, and and I actually applaud this for what they're trying to do. You know, it kind of gives you that vision of the wild west. I would assume Maria would say, but that's challenging. You're still stuck from a sandbox inside a state. Yes, hence major issues. But the, the the interesting thing is Arizona's trying to learn from the UK's FCA sandboxes um, and create that low regulation environment. But I think what the UK had going for it was it was national. Um, so not and, and in one city you had access to several of the uh, you know within within an hour's travel you've got Cambridge and Oxford, you've got all of the government, all of the tech, all of the finance all in one city. Phoenix doesn't quite have that, but if it can, you know, Delaware is where most of the big tech companies are incorporated through in the US. Arizona is trying to compete there. If it can take some of that away from Delaware and it can also have this finance and tech hub thing, maybe it could do it. Um, especially because we know a lot of UK fintechs are eyeing the, and European fintechs are eyeing the US market. N26 announced their intent to go there. Revolut announced their intent to go there. Will this be where they choose? Hmm. Well, given there's 7 million people in Arizona, that's probably a decent place to start, isn't it? Well, the way they're serving it up is they're actually limiting that, though. You have access to 10,000 people from Arizona within that sandbox, so it's not the entire state of 7 million, but it's a two-year window. So you got two years, 10,000 dedicated Arizonians. I have no idea if that's what you call them, but that's what we're going to call them. So it, but still, you know, you, you are offering that up, and there are, uh, you know, you have Bank of the West, you, you have Amex, you, you know, there's, there is a presence there, and, and, and overall, good move. 
I would say. A lot of retirees, by the way. It's a retiree hotspot. So you have an older demographic, which God knows fintech needs to solve problems. What I for. love is you're never more than 30 minutes away from Sam talking about retirement. Because <laughs> I'm never more than 10 years away from retirement. <laughs> it was a really sweet moment uh, about a couple of weeks ago in New York where uh, you and somebody else uh, got into this like little conversation. So somebody we were talking to, a potential client, mentioned, oh, you know, because I'm thinking about retirement in, in a little bit. And Sam went, Hold my beer. I got this. Uh, Yeah. Like, these are the towns of Florida that you need. These are the good ones. These are the bad ones. Have you sorted out your 401? You know, though, we we had that conversation earlier today, though. So we we did do a um, A takeover with Pension B. Yeah, Pension B. And and actually, my first job in banking was in um, in, in defined benefit and defined contribution. So it was retirement back in the 90s. And in the U.S., we have a massive crisis that's facing us. We have 10,000 baby boomers retiring a day in the U.S., and yet the average savings um, for retirement for folks in their 60s in the U.S. is only $172,000. They're sc- Yo, Kat just made a face. That was really good. In their 50s is only $132,000. There's 36% of Americans nearing retirement age that have zero savings. How much do we think that's um, kind of uh, going to be solved by Arizona? None. But <laughs> no, but I mean, no, it's a start, though. I, again, I'll give them credit, right? Yeah. You do have a user base. If I was going to um, look to do something in the fintech space in the U.S., I would focus on those 60 and older because there is money. What happens after two years? After two years, yeah. Great. Pro- it'll, it'll die up and because actually this is an election year in Arizona. If you were to try and look at this from Arizona State's perspective and you had to go out and figure out how to get this done and you had to figure out you know, where all of this is happening, how would you go about doing that if you, this is a problem you've got to solve? Do you, have you put any thought into that? That's a job. It's difficult. It is. No, it really is. It's a difficult Like, Is question. that from a regulation perspective? or I think data-driven, right? Like how, which fintech startups am I going to get? Who am I likely to get? What's my addressable market? Just yeah. trying to think yeah. about how I'd pull those people in. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of it is what they've done, which is go out on tour to get mm. the optics right and say, hey, mm. we're open for business. And you've got to applaud yeah. them for that. But why here? Like. Why come here? No, like, not wanting to sound a little bit like I'm like, damn, goddamn immigrants coming. Like, I mean, like, why come here? Like, there's probably smart people in, like, Arizona who can, like, build a thing to do You're a- better off building your own fintech hub with your own fintech companies rather than trying to attract them in. It's an interesting question. But, you know, you do have companies here, like Revolut and others, TransferWise, that have said, look, we're trying to break the U.S. market. Um, maybe they're just trying to welcome the I am going in. to get Doug Ducey. On this show. I swear <laughs> to God. We're going to get to Cat. You can come. Yay, All right. Thank you. I swear. We will get I'll Doug Ducey. Now, and I will literally call him Doug Ducey the entire time <laughs> he's on the show. Hey, Doug Ducey. Hey, Doug Ducey. So what do you think? No, honest to God, I will reach out to Doug Ducey, yep. the governor of Arizona. And Does Doug Ducey have DougDucey.com? I hope Doug Ducey has T-shirts because I would wear one. A Doug Ducey T-shirts. If nothing else, we've established that Arizona has Doug Ducey. <laughs> and he's friendly to, to fintech. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, guess, I guess the question is, you know, if we do if you do set up something there, then what what does the regulation entail? What does no regulation entail? Because if you set up like a if you're like a fund, let's say you're wealth simple and you want to enter the US market, you're already in the US market, but let's say hypothetically you set up an asset management or robo advisor there, can you still operate in the other states but still like fund like funnel the money back into Arizona? Like it, what what a my, what an absolute overhead migraine imagine the fees that they're paying just you know what i mean for getting set up in the u.s right from a and the attorney's fees are ridiculous 
for something like that, the overhead that they have for that. So, yeah, I, I, to me, that would just be an absolute nightmare. I'm also not a thrill or, or a big fan of the two years. That two-year window, to me, is way too short. Indeed. All right. Just before we move on, he does own DougDoocy.com. I love this guy. <laughs> Doug, you are my hero. Doug Doocy, we love you. Alrighty, um, next story. Africa moves into Asia. Uh, <laughs> the story comes from Reuters, and the actual headline is South African fintech Jumo is to expand into Asia with the backing of Goldman Sachs. Um, so they, uh, since 2014, Jumo, which provides credit and savings products uh, to customers and small businesses through mobile, has mainly focused on Africa, where the adoption of mobile money has actually transformed the banking landscape. Uh, the CEO, um, Andrew Watkins Ball, recently uh, moved the company's uh, Singapore office to drive uh, to lead the drive in Asia. Uh, that doesn't mean we won't be expanding in Africa, he says, but the majority of our allocation of resources, we expect very high growth in Asian markets. Um, we actually spoke to our very own Leslie Ann Vaughan, uh, who was, of course, one of the founders and uh, lead engineer on M-Pesa, uh, to get a deeper insight into what's happening. So I first came across Jumo when I started to look at the fintech industry and I discovered them that they'd made an, they'd found an opportunity for themselves in the copy with pride kind of mentality they'd seen what Mpesa had done with Mshwari's credit product that it was based on using data that was available that was digital was the phone records when you only have feature phones there's so little digital data and these guys were helping the telcos and the banks do what Mshwari was doing with, with M-Pesa. And using phone records is helping to understand somebody's profile by using the data that is available. When I talked to, to some of the people who work at, at Jumo, I really discovered at their heart a jobs-to-be-done mentality. They really thought about customer centricity and they thought about A-B testing and they really thought about how to message what they got um, for the product. And I think that's what really helped them be lovable to their clients who were the telcos and the banks running mobile money um, solutions, that they were really bringing something of real value. And it was a very deep partnership because there's no way to get that kind of data unless you are literally inside um, deeply partnered with the organisation right now. I'd say the industry is changing a bit. So you'll see in Pulse we have companies like Branch and Tala. These are two fintech startups that are kind of chasing a very similar proposition for the customer around access to credit. But because the customer has a smartphone, they're able to effectively scrape the data straight off the phone. And that kind of changes the dynamics of the business model. There are a few other startups out that are like um, Jumo, and I've talked to them as well in the past. And the business model dynamics behind pricing of this and the partnership and how to split the revenue... It, it effectively made the startup shut down because there just wasn't enough money in it. It's really interesting to see this kind of expansion plan. It'll be really interesting to see as they go into Asia, is it a smartphone play or a feature phone play? What kind of segment of the market they're going to go after? It's hard to tell. And, and I'm looking forward to see what happens. Thank you very much to Leslie and Vaughan for that. It's not often you hear about African companies moving into Asia. Is, is there something here about proving you can do it in an emerging market and taking it to other emerging markets? Is it this like lack of infrastructure thing that kind of forces you to work with a different distribution model and once you've cracked it somewhere, you can take it somewhere else? I think if, you, if you've created technology that can scale and Africa not be scary to you, then actually 
potentially from an architectural perspective, you've got something that can work anywhere. You know, I think we've seen, you know, plays like Mambu, for example, being probably born out of that. You know, if you can create such a low-cost operating uh, core banking engine that actually can work really, really effectively to make financial services make money in Africa, then actually the way in which you can take that anywhere is really, really effective. There's something really interesting about the economics there, uh, that... The economics and the business model has to stack up in, in a really harsh environment. It has to really solve a problem. Like you have to make a material difference to people's lives and you have to distribute in a different way. This idea of owning the customer is very different when their primary source of money is mobile money. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess it's not too different the way that the African economies work. They rely mostly on great economy anyway. So it's not too different. The things that I'd be concerned about is how do you actually evaluate your risk for um you know, people in, in Africa and in Asia, like the examples that they gave on the website were like, you know, a, a grocery shop or a restaurant owner in Pakistan. And, 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 and I have personal experience, and this is, in Pakistan, there's no such thing as limited liability. So if you don't pay back your loan, people will come to your house with guns and they will make you pay your loan back. I wonder if Jumo's adopted a similar, that's not, probably not, but, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, this is... It's all about localization, <laughs> But, uh, I mean, banks do this, right? The banks... Uh, Go to people's houses with guns. They Not with guns, but with pressure. Yeah, okay. um, and they'll show up at your house and they will... It's called collections. <laughs> You're in a queue. Exactly, yeah. So, 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 I mean, there's so many complexities here that we traditionally don't think about here. You know, like, the idea... You know, the innovation in these countries is on the distribution side, not on the technology itself. Like, you really have to think about, you know, you can take something like e-commerce and bring it to Saudi Arabia, but they don't have addresses there. The innovation's on the distribution side. Uh, and I think that a lot of that's about understanding really understanding the customers which links back to the first story about communities and the common thread we all see is that whilst there's a lot of organizations that talk a great game about understanding the customers like there's nowhere more obvious that you see this as a crucial thing to succeed than in africa and with some of these organizations and i think they've been forced to do it otherwise you don't succeed yeah there's a flip side of that too though and and one of these days we're gonna have to get leslie in and talk about this so M-Pesa, while a massive success when it first rolled out, rolled out in South Africa, not so great. Rolled out in Romania, not so great, right? So there are differences when you, when you take those and go into other markets. With Romania, it was the, the regulatory environment, right, that was there that killed it. In South Africa, it's just a completely different customer base yeah. and what their needs were. So it's just not one of these lift and plug and it's going to work well and that's that's where i think you know even coke changes the dynamic of the syrup depending on which country that they're sort of deploying it into so i don't think products work as an import export thing but actually that's where i think infrastructure and mentality kind of do um so that's where i I do wonder exactly like you said maybe not localization of turning up with an ak to kind of like repay a loan type thing but um you know stranger things that happen right fintech's going global uh next story comes from finextra uh, abu dhabi has opened a digital sandbox and a move that would really anger maria vula from new york but if and if you want to know more generally about the region uh, don't forget that we did uh, an islamic fintech episode episode 252 uh, where we had a lot of guests talking about kind of what's happening in the region uh, but the abu dhabi global markets the emirates international financial center has uh launched its digital sandbox uh, it's designed to offer banks and fintechs the open digital marketplace um, the idea of creating testing and adopting new fintech products um, as well as attracting international players to the emirate um, also competition to establish the fintech hub of choice in the middle east has become increasingly intense between dubai abu dhabi saudi arabia uh, with both abu dhabi and dubai now being active 
in establishing sandbox as an accelerators. Saudi Arabia is potentially in a position of playing catch-up there. We haven't really seen uh, anything on the sandbox side, but the Saudi Capital Market Authority recently issued its first fintech licenses to two local startups in a bid to kickstart its sector and expects to receive more applications this year. Um, so there's uh, some interesting stuff here. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, about that region in general. Um, <clears throat> so there's there's a lot to say about regulation in that region. It's it's something more of, a, of an art than a science. You can't really predict what's going to happen there. Um, you know, there could be a royal decree tomorrow to saying, oh, you know, we, we don't want any fintechs. And suddenly all the fintechs have to close down. There's no sort of checks and balances. Um, a similar example was done in Dubai when they incentivized people to buy houses in Dubai and get permanent residency. But a few years later decided, actually, you know, we don't want to get permanent residency to a bunch of people buying houses. So they took it back from people. So those kind of things do exist. Um, with regards to actually the potential, there's a huge potential to like use that as a hub as long as you can navigate the cultural differences. Um, Sam, you were there, so you can probably speak on this as well as I can about the cultural differences in, in the region and how it's a very relationship-based game. You have to know the right people. Uh, an example of this is like, I know people personally who are in charge of the PIF fund, so uh, the 2 trillion, one of the biggest sovereign wealth funds in the world. Um, and they had a strategic plan with MBS saying that, you know, this is exactly how we're going to operate. These are the board members. We've selected them on based on these characteristics. And the next day he woke up and he's like, you know what? I really like Uber. I'm going to drop $3.5 on Uber. Nothing to do with strategy, nothing to do with what they were advised. So if FCA even does go there with some guidance, um, it's more of a money-making opportunity for FCA than actually creating, creating impact. Because whether those strategies are actually implemented is a completely different question. It's like, here's our sandbox, but also it, you need the relationship for the sandbox to work. Exactly. A, yeah. Interesting interesting perspective. Um, but what do, you, what do you guys think? I mean, it's a massive opportunity, right? I mean, the, the something like $2 trillion and assets within the, the Islamic community that you look at. So obviously, when you approach it from that standpoint, you're looking and go, oh, my God, massive opportunity. And it's funny for somebody from the U.S., especially when they travel in the Middle East, to see how rapidly things can, can happen, right? Like when I was in Riyadh, I remember they were um, doing construction to put an underground rail system in right through the heart of the city. And I'm like, well, how long is that going to take? I'm like, hey, eight months. In the U.S., we still haven't got the planning permits done. Right. I mean, it just doesn't happen. You go to Dubai and the, the just the incredible city itself and literally the what you see, they're constantly being changed and the canals that they created and everything else. But then on the flip side, when it shuts down, it's done. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's over. So that risk reward standpoint There's a huge is, risk reward. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just look at the housing prices in Dubai, right? Exactly. Housing prices, like in five years, one house went from 12 million to 25 million back down to 9 million in a five, in a five year time yeah. period. So it's wow. unheard of. It, and it's interesting that the macro level, you've seen the declining oil prices and governments grappling with deficits for the first time. Uh, you've kind of had safe jobs with government, maybe not always been the thing for the future. And then you've got to demographic shift with uh, more young people entering the population uh, is an interesting bit of timing to try and get some fintech innovation some tech innovation to, to try and rebalance the economy it could be interesting what i find fascinating though and i, I looked at this before is actually with sarah timmons hi sarah timmons over there when we worked together a couple years ago um on a credit union study that we we're doing on on the dreaded millennial world uh, word but when you look globally at millennials and you get outside of africa if you make a concentric circle around indonesia in, in Malaysia, at the 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 sheer number of uh, young people that fall into that millennial category and incredibly digital savvy, savvy that's the heart mm. of the world. If you really want to understand people's adoption of digital, look at Indonesia, which 
by the way, from an Islamic standpoint, has a, right, I don't know what the percentage is, I can guarantee you it's pretty dang high and significant. So solutions that you're trying to implement from a financial services standpoint, you have to take into consideration. I would not ignore that whatsoever. Everybody's doing sandboxes, and I think it's actually a really interesting opportunity for organizations big and small. Um, sandboxes don't just have to be for fintechs. Sandboxes can be a way to develop new propositions and services in a way where if you are genuinely trying to do the right thing for customers and you're trying to be data-led in how you do it, this opportunity to do it with direct sort of support from the regulator in a way it's like we're not going to hit you if you're just open about what you're doing for a little bit and don't go too big. I think it's an interesting trend. Um, and it's one where, you know, it all started with the uh, the plucky little FCA sandbox uh, a little while ago. So I'm quite proud of that. No, globalization is it's going to be fascinating to witness everything that's happening over the next two, five, ten years, just still giggling away. And I'm kind of visualizing a connect the dots. It's like which fintechs and big big finance companies are going to gravitate to which opportunities and which markets and how they're going to overlap and what kind of yeah dots and pictures are going to connect with that and and that's going to be really interesting to see that unfold and how people respond the world's getting smaller yet at the same time the political pressure is for the world to renationalize mm. and trade walls it's Completely. kind of interesting like and, and that's the thing that's how brexit has happened that's how trump has got into power is the sort of revolt of at least 50% of the people kind of going against that, isn't it? So it's a, it is an interesting one. I do, it's going to be really, really interesting to see when like say Revolut or Starling or Monzo, whoever go to the U S or, or maybe you know, anywhere else. Yeah. Well, <coughs> that's fine. Yeah. We, like yeah. natives, right. It works yeah. well, but you know, being in a situation where does these things, you know, can we export this stuff? Because actually, I'm not still sure, really, that actually they've got to the point where they're self-sustaining, never mind kind of going on taking, you know, other countries on. Well, so we saw uh, Her Majesty's Treasury in March of this year announced the fintech bridge with Australia. They have a few of the fintech bridges, this idea that if you are regulated in one country, it would effectively be the same as passporting to another. I guess that's the ultimate endpoint for these things. Will they get there? The jury's out. Yeah, but it, but it's not just the regulatory perspective. It's whether customers actually give a shit. So, like, you know, quaintly going into America and going, hello, we're from the future. Yeah. <laughs> we, have some, we have brought you banking. <laughs> After we shoot you, yeah. then we will. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure we tried that at one point and it didn't turn out so well. well so also, could, hello, we're from the UK. They might not like that either. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, a rebellious spirit runs through us to uh, to no end, even at our detriment. Exactly. Yeah, but the Beatles, times. Ed Sheeran, what more do you want? Like, you can have Ed Sheeran back. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, I'm sure. But it's interesting to me, though, that... Uh, these sandboxes are popping up. They're trying to internationalize, and it's probably not so much for the uh, for the consumer, but for the business. Like, help the business go to another country, and, and maybe we'll see more of that. And would we ever see a big bank take advantage of these fintech bridges? Like, or, or could a, a big bank do something like a? Could big banks act like small banks using fintech regulation? Yeah, many big banks have, have actually sort of retracted, haven't they? You know, many, many big organizations have sort of moved out of that international banking presence because, you know, the, the, the tide was moving people sort of back to where their roots were rather than the other way around. And it, it is going to be interesting to see what happens. I think there's many predictions coming out that actually we're going to be seeing another financial crisis in the not too distant future. So I think many big organizations are probably better at predicting that than the small organizations. Therefore, I think they probably won't be putting their when you're small soon. and you're growing, everything's upside. 
Exactly. Yeah. So, it's all then, exciting, right? It's all learning opportunity too. Putting yourself out there, doing a few experiments and that knowledge is really valuable that regardless of whether it succeeds in those markets, that'll hopefully they can see the value in that and take it back. Yeah, to when home. you have a scale, that's a wonderful story. When you're a startup, that's hell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean it is. It's you know, the, yet that failure means you're done. Yeah. Right? A, a failed experiment at scale is one thing. A failed experiment when you're the startup is a whole different story. Alrighty, um moving on to the next story. Has everybody heard of Mary Mika? Mm, yeah. The PowerPoint. Uh yeah, the PowerPoint, indeed. The the PowerPoint. Uh not the human. Uh Mary Mika, who's a legendary uh internet analyst, is leaving the VC firm uh Kleiner. Um so Kleiner Perkins Caulfield Byers, one of the premier Silicon Valley investors at uh, uh one of the premier VC firms, uh, she's actually leaving. Um she's the most senior woman in venture capital um, and of course famous for her internet trends report if you've not seen mary meeker's internet trends report um this is for the british listeners it kind of reminds me of the internet's version of the radio times at christmas it's like here's the thing that comes around once a year that i really really like and makes me excited that it's christmas it's like this is making me excited that it's the internet look at all the things that are happening in the internet this year um it's a, it's an institution because uh, she'll do things and back it up with data in really great ways um, so, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting sign of the times. Do you know what? I, I'm not sure I actually was fully aware that Mary Meeker was a human. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like Aunt Bessie. You know I mean? I'm not sure Aunt Bessie actually makes oh, Yorkshire puddings. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like, I've never actually seen Mary Meeker of you. Yeah. She presents it every year. Really? I've never, I've never seen that. All, all it, I'm aware of is like some charts on a PowerPoint. No, no, it. no. When she, when she does this, it's like when Apple actually gets on stage. Really? Right. Oh, and yeah. they do the, pre- it was, it's, it's the precursor yeah. to Steve Jobs at the Worldwide Developer Conference. This is a massive, literally the second she starts presenting, there are folks everywhere because her decks are shit. Right. I mean, look wise. So there's, what people constantly do is take the information from her deck and then make them look good. There's a whole, go out and Google that. You'll die laughing. But the information itself is fantastic. She, they call her the queen of the internet back in the U.S. I call her Mary, queen of stocks. You're welcome for that. I thought of that at three in the morning last night. Nice. Yeah, and no one laughed, so all of you. But I like that. Um, as an analyst in the U.S., she rules. Mm. And her team does. And she's literally taking her team with her, yeah. which I find fascinating. Um, Kleiner, this is the same... Um, organization know that if you've heard of Ellen Powell in the in the U.S. Um, so we're getting back to I think one of our original stories, right? When we're talking about women in the venture capital space, um, where you know Ellen actually uh, sued the organization and went to court. Well, she did lose. Um, Kleiner's reputation has been taking a beating now. I would say over the past five or so years, and losing Mary Meeker, no matter how they spend this, is awful. They just do is. actually do a um, a fintech trends report as yep. well at Kleiner Perkins. So um, they're, they're, they're talking about the Cambrian explosion of fintech and that uh, it's super important and what's happening. So they, they are trying to do this without Mary Mika. And it's interesting that they felt the need to do um, fintech venture funding, the cat- the super category, um, and that they are sort of very active. Um, and they've you know there's charts about um, PayPal surpassing Amex's market cap. The, they they're just really great at charts. Um, so that's uh, that's why you should go Google. All right. Our, and finally, story today comes from The Independent. There's a pub in the UK, uh, in a UK first, has stopped taking cash payments. Now, this isn't a bar. This is a regional small town pub. Think um, pub with a small dog in a country lane somewhere type of thing. Um, and they, they are apparently the first. The boot is the name of the pub. It's in Freston near Ipswich. No longer has tills. Ipswich? Yeah. 
hang on. As somebody who lives in Norwich, I cannot allow a story to be from Ipswich. I think that's uh, entirely unacceptable. Uh, customers have to either pay by card or through their phone. The landlord said there are many benefits, most notably lower insurance premiums as cash is no longer kept on the premises. Interesting. Um, Ipswich, clearly. Um, you know, the, though, the hotbed of crime. I, that I, is Ipswich. I said this right before the show, though. We, were, we had an event last night just down where we were at Shoreditch. Um, and I was walking back, and I walked by a pub that had the sign out front that said card only, mm-hmm. you know, written in the, the chalk and everything But that's else. normal now. It used to be that you walked into a place, and it was cash only, and it's now flipped to card only. And I don't remember the moment that that happened, but it happened recently-ish. Yeah, in um, the U.S., you routinely see uh, card on, cards, but it has to be $5 and above, right, because yeah. of the fees that they have and to pay. And you still get that at corner shops a little bit here, or they have a minimum spend, yeah. but I, th- I think it was the, the moment where tax laws become a little bit more effective so <laughs> cash only yeah. reads to me like yeah i might be putting all of this through my books i might not be putting yeah. through my books um and actually you <laughs> know the game starts in an hour so john wardley who's 85 who was at the boot for lunch said um, I, I'm not going to try and do his old man voice. Sam, do you want to do this? No, I, like I want <laughs> seriously. I want I'm somebody done. to read read that sentence because I've tried three times and I'm not sure if it's because I'm two pints in, but I'm really struggling. I've got in the way of. I'll do it. Come on, Ready? using I'll do the it. cards as the most of the push. <laughs> I'm making the shop for under thirty pounds. So I. I'm okay with using cards because most of the purchases in the shop are under £30. In fact, I use it all the time now. It's much more convenient. This is one of the things like where if you try and read the transcript of anything Donald Trump says, it makes no sense. Yeah, it was like when he talked about the hurricane when he said you had a great amount of rain and a great amount of water and this was really wet. And you're like, oh, my God, he's stoned out of his gourd. <laughs> what I like best about this is actually the comment that Donham put in the notes where he said, I just love the idea of an 85-year-old man using contact lists for all his shopping. That on that. No, that closes this week's show. Um, so where can people find out more about you, Kat? Oh, you can find me on, well, at, at I'm Catherine Harris um, on Insta and Twitter. Yeah. Brilliant. Ahmed, how about yourself? You can find me on LinkedIn or on my Twitter, which is at underscore Ahmed Zaidi. Brilliant. Oh, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn too. <laughs> all right. That's not just, just saying. Just saying. <laughs> I'm on all the social media channels. Just follow me everywhere. So you have your own Discord. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> Um, I'll be in Arizona helping Doug Ducey run for governor <laughs> and uh, pumping him up. Uh, at Sam Mall. David. At David Breer on Twitter. Actually, it's at David Breer. <laughs> <laughs> so David Breer on Twitter has got some weird cash-taking thing going on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about. He just wants his little rush on the way home. <laughs> And you can find me at S.Y. Taylor on Twitter. And remember, you can join the discussion uh, fintechinsidernews.com or tweet us at fintechinsiders. Um, please subscribe if you want to hear things in a high-pitched voice. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just spit your <laughs> Yeah, that beer went down the wall. Yeah, oh, Doug's not going to be impressed with that. And um, to really make our weeks, leave us a review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.